Good morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John 16. We're going to be in verses 16 through 33. You know, human history has been punctuated by inventions and groundbreaking discoveries that revolutionize human life as, as the world knew it once. The course of all of history is changed by some of these discoveries. Genesis 4 mentions a couple men, seven generations after Adam. Uh, Jubal, who pioneered musical instruments like the lyre and the pipe. Tubal Cain, who began forging instruments of bronze and iron. You just think about where life is today because of some of those discoveries and inventions, like the wheel, right? 3500 BC, think about all of the applications of the wheel today. Or Gutenberg and the printing press in 1440, or Columbus heading west to go east and discovering a new world, or Edison and the light bulb, or the automobile, or the airplane, or the internet, or the smartphone. Because of those things, just think how different your life is today. I often think, I'm glad I live now with these modern conveniences. I just would not do well without electricity, refrigeration, running water. I'm amazed at the people who came before us and lived without those things. Those inventions and discoveries quite literally changed the world. Human life was markedly different before and after. Some of those things made instant overnight impact. Some of them spread gradually and slowly. Some of them changed things for better and Maybe in some ways you could say for worse. But far and away, the greatest, the single greatest event in all of human history was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing has changed humanity more. Not the iPhone. Not the internet. Nothing that's coming. Who knows what will be discovered in coming decades. Nothing has had a greater impact on human history than the death and resurrection of the Son of God. From that point on, nothing has been the same. You just imagine what it would be like if you you were living under a rock and you had no idea of some of these modern conveniences. Sadly, many people don't know, don't realize, don't live with a conscious awareness of all the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what this text is about this morning. It should make as big a difference even bigger difference in your life than the electricity and the running water that you take for granted. Let's give our attention to John 16, beginning in verse 16. This is God's word, and it's living and it's active. That means when he addresses us through his word, he causes things to happen within us. It's not just information going in our head. It it impacts, it affects our hearts and our lives. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me, Jesus said. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world... You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, directly to you, in the name of your son Jesus, by the merits of our great high priest, with full confidence in his work, his accomplishment, his death, his resurrection and his love for us, and your love for us in him. And so we pray that you would cause your word to go forth with power into our hearts and our minds, that we would receive it with faith and believe it and be different because of it. Affect us, change us, transform us, give us understanding and insight and clarity, just as you promised to do through your spirit, the helper who dwells within us, and make us to know you change our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Jesus says in verse 16 here, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Notice how many times in this text, John, the the author who's recording this, intentionally repeats that entire sentence. He repeats it again in verse 17 when the disciples are talking amongst themselves and they're asking each other, what's this that he's saying to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And then again in verse 19, I mean, John doesn't have to include the whole sentence again, right? He could just refer back to it, but he says, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? So this is kind of a big deal to John, this little while until they don't see him, and then the little while until they do see him again. He repeats it three times. There's this little while, two little whiles, little while till they don't see him little while till they will see Jesus again. What is Jesus referring to? 
That's the source of confusion for the disciples. They're saying to each other, we don't know what he's talking about. What does that mean? Does the first little while refer to Jesus' ascension to the Father, his departure there? Does it refer to his departure in, in death? What's he talking about? In the second little while, when they will see him again, is that referring to his resurrection from the dead? Or maybe the outpouring of his spirit? Or maybe his second coming at the end of the age? What is he talking about? Throughout John, Jesus does talk about his departure in terms of returning to the Father. He's going to ascend to the Father. But his teaching here in this section, in the immediate context, makes the most sense if Jesus is talking about the first little while referring to his departure in death. In a little while, you won't see me because I'm going to die. And then, in a very little while, you will see me. That's referring to his resurrection three days later. Look at John 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. If we take the I will see you again to refer to the second coming at the end of history, that would mean that the entire Christian life from that point through today and until Jesus returns is marked by sorrow, and there won't be joy until Jesus comes back again. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's offering a promise of joy that would begin with his resurrection from the dead. His sorrow would, their sorrow would soon turn to joy. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. Look at John 20, verse 20. He showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad. That's the same word. They, they rejoice. Same word that Jesus uses here in Chapter 16, verse 22, other translations say they were overjoyed, they were filled with joy when Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection. Why does that matter, what these little whiles refer to? It matters because what Jesus is saying here in John 16 is that his death and his resurrection are eschatological events, big word that means Last things, last days, end times. He's saying, my death and my resurrection are end times realities. They show, they mark the beginning of the end. And so Jesus' language here is saturated with eschatological language. In verses 23 and 26, he uses the phrase, in that day, referring to his resurrection. In that day. In that day is end times language. Listen to D.A. Carson. He says, in that day or that day or the like, often in the New Testament refers to the last days, the end of the age. This does not mean that Jesus here refers to the end of history and not the period after his resurrection. But listen, it means that he's referring to the period after his resurrection as the end of history. His resurrection marks the beginning of the end, in that day. In verses 25 and 32, Jesus says, the hour is coming. The hour is another eschatological term. And the events that Jesus foretells is happening in that hour actually refer to prophecies about the Messiah. Verse 32, he references Zechariah 13, 7, this prophecy that the Messiah would be a shepherd who struck and the sheep would be scattered. Jesus says in 1632, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. He's saying, 
eschatological messianic prophecies about me are about to be fulfilled right now, in just a little while. One more big term. In verse 21, Jesus speaks of a woman in the hour of labor. And his words mark, uh, match very closely Isaiah 26, 16 through 21, where Isaiah prophesied using that figure of speech of a woman in labor. He uses that phrase, a little while, and he promises resurrection from the dead. So there's this strong parallel to Isaiah 26. And prophets like Jeremiah and Micah also use that imagery of a woman in labor. In fact, it became in Jesus' day among the Jews, the birth pangs of the Messiah was like almost a technical phrase referring to the distress and the affliction that they expected to characterize life just before the the fulfillment of God's promises of this end times joy. Jesus is using that language here. The point in all of this, here's why it matters for you today. The point is that Jesus' death and resurrection is the beginning of the end, or what we call inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated. Jesus started it. He inaugurated the end things. My favorite illustration of this, one that I've cited before, comes from Doug Wilson in his book, Heaven Misplaced. He says this, We have to resist a false image of human history. This false image works in this way. We think that human history is basically all the same, at least from the fall of man to the second coming. Things go on pretty much as they've always done. And in the middle of this grim history, God placed the cross and resurrection, that resurrection being a completely anomalous event in an otherwise unchanged world. Wow, look at that anomaly. Nothing else really changed after that. This cross and resurrection are the gospel, and all they mean is that we can be saved, which means in turn we go to heaven when we die. Other than that, it didn't really have any effect on humanity, history, anything else. But try this image instead. At the fall, human history became a movie that we're watching in a grainy, scratchy black and white. When Christ rose from the grave, a point of blinding light appeared at that place. And from that place, odd things started to happen, not in the plot lines of the story at first, but rather in the nature of the storytelling itself. Color started to slowly spread out from that resurrection point, and the graininess started to slowly disappear and is gradually transformed into some kind of HDTV. And of course, over time, the storyline itself was also affected. When that kind of thing starts to happen, We all look at the screen intently, staring expectantly. So that's the question that opens up this text. I want to spend the remainder of our time answering. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean for his disciples now? What should we be expecting now? Not just that we'll die and go to heaven someday far off in the future. What realities can we experience now since Jesus began the end when he rose from the dead? According to John 16, Jesus' teaching here, you should expect at least these three things, certainly more than this, but at least these three things, new assurance, new attitudes, and new access to the Father. New assurance, new attitudes, new access to the Father. The resurrection of Jesus means for you new Assurance, and by assurance, I mean confidence and clarity and understanding and conviction instead of 
confusion, the kind of confusion that characterized the disciples prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at verses 23 and 25. Verse 23, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. What does Jesus mean when he says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me? I think in the English, it's a little confusing because English translators use the same word, ask, for two different Greek words, and then you have this verse, Jesus is saying, you will ask nothing of me, but you will ask of the Father, and so it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, you won't pray to me, you'll just pray to the Father. That's not what he's saying. He uses two different Greek words here. He's talking about asking the Father in prayer, but the kind of asking of himself that the disciples will no longer do is like the the confused question asking, asking questions. We don't get it. Tell us what you mean kind of thing. That's what's going on in the text here. Remember all the point John made out of how confused the disciples were? They kept saying to each other, what's he saying to us? What does he mean? We do not know what he's, at, what he's talking about. In verse 19, it says Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. That is, ask him questions, clarifying questions because they just didn't get it. Read any of the Gospels. It is remarkable how the disciples are portrayed as slow, foolish, bumbling along, not understanding. They didn't get it. In fact, their confusion is so evident in this text from the fact that after Jesus starts to say that in that day they will understand and not be confused, what do they do? They say, oh, now we get it. But they don't. Because they're not going to get it now, they're going to get it then, and they think they get it now, which just shows how totally lost they are. They still don't get it, but in that day, you will not be confused. When Jesus dies and rises from the dead, all the confusion is gone. Not only that, but all of the prophecies and the promises and the types and the shadows come into focus, and all of God's revelation throughout history makes sense in light of the glory of God at the cross of Jesus. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. The hour is coming when I will talk to you plainly about the Father. In that day, that hour, that time of knowing the Father will be marked by clarity and understanding and assurance. Remember the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those confused disciples who were disheartened. Luke 24, listen, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is after his resurrection. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. All of a sudden, all of those things came into focus and made sense. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It's starting to make sense. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, I picture this like a, a pin tumbler lock, like the lock on your house. You stick a key in. The key moves these pins inside so that they all line up just the right point, and then the key turns. The death and resurrection of Jesus is like that key that slides all the other pins of the prophecies and the promises and the, the temple and the sacrifices, slides them into place, into alignment, and the whole thing turns. It just clicks. It, it all comes into focus. It's not that post-resurrection knowledge of God is exhaustive. You know absolutely everything about God, so there's no more questions, no more mystery. It's that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the climax. It's the pinnacle 
of God's self-revelation. It's at the cross where God's justice and his mercy are fully and most clearly made known. God is humiliated and glorified. Death itself is conquered by death. And God makes known the depth and the glory of his grace towards sinners. And it's at the cross then where all of our questions get resolved. How how do you know what God is like? You look at the cross. How do you know that your sins are forgiven? How, How do you really know in those moments where you're plagued by guilt? How do you know? You look at the cross. How do you know that God is in control when you feel anxious and afraid and your life is out of control and it feels like God is out of control and he's not doing what you thought he promised he would do? How do you know he's still in control? You look at the cross and you see that in the darkest moment, if there was ever a time when it looked like God was out of control, it was at the cross when the Son of God died and yet it all happened according to his plan and his purpose. You look to the cross. How do you know God loves you? You look to the cross where God displayed his love to the uttermost. The death and resurrection of Jesus clarifies and completes the revelation of the Father. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 2, 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So a new assurance, a new clarity, a new conviction comes post-resurrection, and you live in that age. The resurrection of Jesus means new attitudes. By attitude, I mean your posture toward the world, your outlook, your response to life, to trouble, to hardship, your disposition toward all of life. Jesus speaks of three attitudes in particular that will characterize his disciples post-resurrection of Jesus in this resurrection age. Joy, peace, Encourage. Let me show you these quickly. Jesus' resurrection turns sorrow into joy. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Right? That, that's important. It's not just that God will give you some joy in the end to make up for your troubles along the way, the way a, a restaurant once gave us a gift card to say, sorry about the hair you found in your food. Sorry for your troubles. Come back again later. I don't know if we ever use that again. Joy is not like God saying, sorry life was kind of hard, here's some joy. No, this is sorrow that turns into joy. So there's a tighter connection between sorrow and joy than that. Sorrow turning into joy. Sorrow coming through, joy coming through the sorrow. Jesus illustrates in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. I mean, it might take a little while to no longer remember the anguish. I think Barbara's first words to me after Knox was born was something like, I'm never doing that again. (laughs) She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. There's no joy of the baby without the sorrow and the anguish of the labor. That labor leads to that joy. It's it's the way that there's no way to experience the exhilarating views from the peak of Everest without the agony of climbing Everest. It's the only way to the top. There's no way to feel what it's like to complete a marathon unless you 
pound the pavement for 26.2 miles plus all the miles of training before that. There's agony that results in joy. And here's the thing. The disciples are not the ones who endure the suffering of the cross. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was stripped. Jesus was beaten and murdered and buried. So their sorrow is real, but it's pretty different. They're sad that he died. He actually died. And it was his travail that brought forth the joy of salvation. And yet, he says to those disciples and to you, you can share in my joy that I secured by enduring death in your place, on your behalf. Enter into my joy. And oh, what joy it is, verse 22, A, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. So this is heartfelt joy. It's genuine soul satisfaction. That means it's not just superficial sentimentality. It's not just subjective feelings that we try to stir up. It's objective. It's rooted and grounded in Jesus. And because it's in Jesus, it's unassailable. The rest of verse 22, no one will take your joy from you. I mean, if your joy is based on popularity, your bank account balance, how many likes and follows you have, how healthy you are, the promotion you got, how many vacation days you have, anything else in this world, if your joy is based on that, you could, you could lose it in a moment. But when your source of joy is the one who endured the cross despising its shame for the joy set before him, when your source of joy is the one who ripped the gates off the grave, who could take your joy from you? What could you ever experience that would take away the joy you have in him? And it's abundant joy, verse 24, asking you will receive that your joy may be full, complete not lacking anything. Jesus promises to provide exactly what you need in order to maximize your joy in him. I think that's the best way to think about what it means to have fullness of joy. Jesus will give you, don't look at other people, what they have and what you don't have. He will give you exactly what you need in the circumstances and situations and provisions in your life, exactly what you need to experience maximized joy in him. Your joy will be full. It doesn't necessarily mean all the other categories of life will be full. But however much health you have, however much money you have, however, much, however many days of life you have, you, you will have what you need to have maximum joy in Jesus. Joy. That's the attitude that characterizes disciples post-resurrection of Jesus while we live in this already and not yet of the kingdom. There are more attitudes. There's peace. His, his resurrection turns worry into peace. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Same word that he used back in 21 talking about the woman in labor and her anguish. You will have tribulation in the world. In me, peace and security. In the world, you will endure hard things. You'll experience pain and distress. So how is that not a contradiction? How could it be both at the same time? We're still in the world where we experience tribulation, 
and yet we are in Jesus by faith where we have peace, how could those things coexist? Well, for one, it's a reminder that we live in this tension of the already and the not yet of the kingdom. Already begun, already inaugurated, not yet fully realized. Jesus has already overcome the world. He has not yet delivered you out of it, as he says in John 17, 15. That means, here's why that's such good news. That means you can already experience and enjoy peace in Jesus even as you endure hard things in life. This peace is not circumstantial peace. It's peace in Jesus. But here's the temptation. Aren't we tempted to turn to Jesus as the means to the end that we want? Peace is what we want, and we use Jesus to get that. So if we're not getting the comfort and the ease and the peace in life that we want through Jesus, we look at Jesus like, what, what are you doing? You're not, you're not doing your job. That's idolatrous to use Jesus as, an ends to the mean, as a means to the end. He promises a different kind of peace, one that's not based on your circumstances, but one that will endure in spite of your circumstances, regardless of your circumstances. Here's another promise embedded in that. All of your suffering and all of your sorrow is limited. It has an end date. It will not endure forever. In this world, you will have tribulation. But Jesus already overcame the world, and he will work out in due time the full effects of that. And one day there will be no more tribulation. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Doesn't that make you just pray like the, the very end of Revelation? Come, Lord Jesus, come, and wipe away the tears from our eyes. But secure us now with your peace. The other attitude Jesus says will characterize his disciples in this age post-resurrection is courage. Verse 33 again, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. That's a command. It's stated as an imperative. Do this. Be strengthened. Be encouraged. Take heart. Fear not. Think about that. Jesus commands you to have certain attitudes while you live in this world where you will have trouble. Commands you to feel courage and not fear. And he has said things and done things so that can be possible for you. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He has said things so that you can have peace. His word is part of your experience of peace. Apart from his word, apart from filling your mind with the truth of his word and meditating on those promises and turning your mind consciously to his promises to you in the moments when you are overcome by fear and anxiety, apart from his words, you will not have peace. But I have said these things to you so that you may have peace. And he has done things. It's not just talk. It's not cheap talk. You can know his words and his promises are true because of what he's done. I have overcome the world. 
The world rejoiced momentarily when he was crucified. They gloated in his death. But it was his death that defeated sin and death and the devil. And so the decisive victory has already been won. And Jesus says to you, live like it. Live like someone who knows, I already dealt with all your sin. I already dealt with the sting of death. I took it all out. You don't have to fear death anymore. Take heart. Be of good cheer. Revelation 1, 17 through 18, he addresses John in this vision. Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Fear not. So when feelings and emotions set in, and you feel like you're a helpless victim of them, like you just overcome with fear or panic or worry or despair and you just can't do anything about it, just know that's not true. That thought, I can't help it, is not true. Jesus says to you, take heart. And here's how his commands work. John 11, Lazarus is in the tomb and Jesus stands outside and he just yells, come out. And a dead man comes alive and comes walking out. This command works just like that. Jesus says to you, take heart. And it's his command that strengthens and encourages you. So listen to him and trust him. Just like when he's on the boat with the disciples in the storm and he just commands the, the wind and the waves, be still. And his word is effective. It does what he tells it to do. It creates something in us. It creates attitudes in us. Joy, peace, courage, so that those mark our lives, even as we live in this world where we have trouble. Last thing, the resurrection of Jesus means new access to the Father. Seven times in this farewell discourse, which is John 14 through 16, seven times Jesus makes this promise, whatever you ask in my name will be given to you. Seven different times, and three of them come in our text this morning. Jesus' death and resurrection grants you unprecedented access to the Father. And I say it's unprecedented because, look at verse 24, he says to his disciples, until now you have asked nothing in my name. They had never prayed this way before. No one had ever prayed this way before. What's different about it? It's prayer in Jesus' name. No one had ever prayed to God in the name of the Son. And here's something else that's different about it. Nobody prayed to God as Father. Nobody related to God like He is my Father, my loving Father who knows me. And that's the new thing. Of all the seven times Jesus promises, whatever you ask in my name, that will be granted to you, the seventh one is this one. And here's what's different. Verse 26 and, verse, and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Direct access to the Father. I'm not just going to be a go-between for you. Yes, Jesus makes intercession for us. He laid his life down for us. He is our advocate with the Father, and the result of that intercession is your direct access to the Father. Why? Why? Because the Father himself loves you. 
How could he love us? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That is, through faith, you're joined to Jesus and the Father loves the Son. And so if you're in Jesus, the Father loves you just like he delights in his own Son whom he has loved forever because that Son shares his glory. You can go straight to God the Father as your loving Father because the Father himself loves you. When you pray, do you pray that way? Is that the controlling thought in your mind? He's my Father and he loves me. Is that the first thought, the dominant attitude in your heart toward God when you approach him in prayer? My guess would be, at least for some of you, it's not. God is big and distant. God is holy and scary. God is a judge. And he told me I'm innocent, but he's still kind of scary sitting up there on the bench with the gavel and the black robe. If you relate to God in those ways, you're missing something that Jesus wants to characterize your life in this age post-resurrection. Here's how J.I. Packer says it. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. He's your father, and it can only be true because Jesus died and rose again. In a little while, you will not see me. In a little while, you, see, you will see me again. And that will begin entirely new things. New assurance, new clarity and conviction about who God is revealed at the cross. New attitudes, joy, peace, courage, and totally unprecedented access to God as Father. So are you living in that reality? Are you availing yourself of these things? I mean, could you imagine living today as if electricity didn't exist? I mean, I know there are some people who do, but wow. Could you imagine, like if you had, you know that Geico commercial? What, do you live under a rock? And there's some guy who comes out from under a rock and just had no idea you could save 15%. Could you imagine not knowing that this is available now? And, and I'm not just talking about like people in the world who don't yet know Jesus. There are all of those billions of people who haven't even heard the gospel yet. But sadly, there are professing Christians who think all it means to be a Christian is that you get to go to heaven when you die. And in the meantime, you just struggle through life like nothing ever changed. These are realities Jesus wants you to walk in today. So trust him and enjoy all that he gives you because he defeated death. Let's pray. We worship you, Lord Jesus. You are the glorious one, the first and the last, the living one. You were dead and now you're alive. And you have the keys of death 
and Hades. And oh, how glad we are that that means we will live forever with you in glory. But help us when the cares of this life, the troubles, the burdens, the sorrows, the disappointments, the failures, when those things settle in and the fog of unbelief keeps us from seeing these realities of the resurrection that you have secured for us now because you already defeated the grave. Jesus, for your sake, so that you might be glorified, help us to walk in these things. Would you cause our lives now to be marked by joy even while we endure hard things so that people would see the source of our joy is something totally different than what they're looking to and that they would come to know you also. We look to you, Lord Jesus. You are the great and glorious one. You gave yourself up for us, died for our sins. You were treated as if you yourself were guilty of all the things we have done. Oh, how we love you. Thank you for the access you've given us. Father, we address you. Thank you, Father, for loving us and giving your son for us. Thank you for inviting us to come before you with all of our requests and all of our burdens and cares and needs. Thank you for loving us and for promising that you will never stop loving us. We are assured of it because of what Jesus did for us. And we love you back. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.